When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So, Jesus is there around Jericho, and there's Zacchaeus. What do you know about his profession? He's a tax collector. And not just a tax collector. Chief tax collector. Yeah, so he was uh, kind of a kingpin in the Jericho tax cartel. He was uh, probably had tax collectors working under him, farmed them, uh, some of the the places that were good to collect the tariffs out. And which probably meant he was a very wealthy man. And uh, that's what it says, he was rich, so you would expect that. Uh, he had one uh, rather uh, serious physical issue, and what was that? He was short. He was short, and the crowd was large, <laughs> so he couldn't see Jesus. So what did he do? He climbed a tree. Which doesn't strike you as something a high-status person might do. I mean, that seems kind of, uh, I don't know, demeaning or something, you know? Because, uh, you know, would you expect Trump to be climbing up a tree to see somebody? You know, that would, that would seem kind of odd. Or really any more dignified person who was wealthy. But he wants to see Jesus, so he does. And, uh, well, Jesus uh, sees him, realizes who he is and where he is. And does something rather unusual. Jesus does what? Talk to him in the tree. Well, he talks to him in a tree. You don't talk and to him. Invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. <laughs> exactly. He said, I'm going to stay at your house. Come on down. <laughs> what do you think about that? Zacchaeus thought it was a great idea. How often do you invite yourself to somebody's house you've never met? Not very often. Never met part. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, your best friend is one thing, but to somebody you don't even know, why would Jesus do this? That seems rather rude. It seems to be, though, Zacchaeus wanted some interaction with Jesus. I mean, he was doing everything he could to at least see him. And so, this is what Zacchaeus needed. Yes. Yeah. A visit from Jesus, maybe. And Jesus knew that. came Just, well, to seek and save that which was lost. Therefore, he invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. I mean, you know, it's really having good etiquette is not the goal. You know, uh, to invite yourself over, invite yourself in, invite yourself to talk to somebody about their soul may not be considered good manners in our society, but it's what you do when you're coming to seek and save the lost. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes people need your company. They need you to help them. And so sometimes you may have to say, listen, uh, can I talk to you? Hey, listen, can I come in? Hey, hey, listen, can I spend the night? I've done some things like this before. You know, I, we're not quite, but 
There have been times in Brazil where I've just invited myself to spend the night at people's house, new converts or whatever that I thought probably needed my company and uh, probably wouldn't have the courage to invite me. Uh, you know, that's kind of bold, but hey, I can help them better if I go. Uh, so, I mean, we've got to get out of our comfort zone if we're going to help people. That didn't set well with the crowd, however, because... He's going into a house of a man that's a sinner. That is a sinner, and certainly they wouldn't expect Jesus to have anything to do with someone who's a sinner. What would that mean? Like nothing to do with them, right? Yeah. So, but it's often that people are unwilling to let... Um, people they look down on find the Lord. You know, that's a, that's a pretty common thing. We're we're almost resentful and resist uh, people who are thought of as notorious sinners as far as them coming to the Lord. Uh, but it's it's clear that the love of Jesus changed Zacchaeus because what does he say he's going to do? possessions to the poor and repay anybody he's defrauded. Yeah, four times in fact. Uh, he's uh, enthusiastically announcing a major change of life. He's going from taking advantage of people to serving people. And uh, so clearly Jesus coming to his house has had an impact and Jesus rejoices that salvation has come to him. Uh, he needed it. And uh, we need to let Jesus enter our, our house, too, and change our lives, too. That's what he came to do. If we'll let him in, he'll, he'll transform us. Do you see how Zacchaeus was like the blind man? He was trying to see. But couldn't at first. The crowds were trying to stop him. Yeah. <laughs> There will always be hindrance, hindrances. Both do things that are kind of unconventional. The blind man bellowing out for him and uh, Zacchaeus climbing up the tree. But they wanted to have con contact with Jesus. Um, you know, people will try to stop us. Are we going to let the opinion of people keep us from Jesus? So uh, this is just an encouraging, uh, encouraging passage. You might also compare Zacchaeus with that rich man back in chapter 18. Um, I think the difference was Zacchaeus sees himself as a sinner and the rich man didn't. And that, I think, is why Zacchaeus was, didn't even have to be asked. He volunteers to give a lot of his stuff away. And it appears that he does that before they even get to his house. Yeah, I think that may be the case. Yeah. So he must have known something about what Jesus was about. Well, before. he climbed up a tree to see him, so. Right. Yeah. <coughs> Comments and questions? Well, Jesus is getting close to Jerusalem. Jericho is uh, just uh, climbing a pretty steep uh, mountain to away from Jericho. So... Oh, one more thing. Um, Jesus says he too is the son of Abraham? Yeah. Like, does that indicate that he was not a Jew? No, I think he was a Jew. He, I think that's what he's saying. He's a Jew also. He's somebody to be blessed by, you know, this connection with Abraham. He may have Roman connections and have done some awful things, but 
you know what? He's still also the seed of Abraham, just like you guys. Exactly. Yeah. Like, Jesus is obviously saying that because of his character and being like Abraham is what I was thinking. That could be, um, but also he is a Jew in spite of what he's done. I think he may be saying that. I mean, okay. you know, what if we said, well, he's a human being too? You know, we understand now that Jesus came to all men. Well, what if this is a low life? Does it matter? I mean, you know, I, I'm more and more convicted of the importance of honoring all men, as First Peter 2.17 says, and, and as an extension of that, seeing everybody as people who have a soul, people who Jesus died for, that need to hear the gospel and that we need to care about. From the, you know, tramp on the, you know, loitering, uh, trying to get some money to, you know, the richest man in the world. Everybody needs the same thing. And they all, pe- they are all people. And, you know, I think we're just too reluctant to see people. I think we're too afraid of people. You know, what are they going to get of mine? What are they trying, how are they trying to hurt me? And I think we've got to get over that if we're going to follow Jesus. Is there an indication that Zacchaeus had defrauded people? Well, he was a chief tax collector. Chances are, at least, he had some funny bookkeeping going on. Yeah, I mean, I think that was pretty much saying the same thing. I mean, it's almost, it's worse than, but it's almost like saying, well, he's a used car dealer. You know? I mean, I realize there may be a brother who's a used car dealer, but, you know, we normally assume used car dealers are cheating people, right? You know, or he does work for, you know, he's a manager of a, uh, you know, one of those uh, quick, uh, quick finance places or something like that. You know? I mean, it's kind of synonymous with taking advantage of people, isn't it? You know, even though my mm. uncle managed one for years. Uh, you know, I mean, so, but I think this would be more universal. I think this would be more like, you know, pretty much if he's a tax collector, you know, in particular. Uh, but it does it matter. I mean, if he's cheating people, he's cheating people. He needs to repent and be saved, just like everybody else does. You know, we look at people, oh, well, they do this. Well, yeah, and you? Well, I don't do that. Well, you do something else that God hates. So, you know, what difference does it make? I should maybe research this. Are we supposed to understand that tax collectors had to cheat people? That was the only way they could get money? Like, he needed to give up being a tax collector? Uh, You know, I don't know if he did give up being a tax collector, I guess. But um, I don't think they had to. I mean, I think it's just the system. Um, Everybody wants to pocket as much money as they can. And for the tax collectors, their profit was at whatever they collected more than what they bid to get the right to do the collecting. That makes it sound like they couldn't make any money unless right. they... No, I think they just made... The more they cheated, the more they made. But you could... Could you still live? I suppose. I don't know how much they... Uh, <laughs> well, if everyone else, else bidding is planning to extort as much as they can, then maybe not. you yeah. might not be able to be honest and profitable. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. I've, I've never read anybody uh, who had an opinion about that. Okay. <laughs> Is it open to the chief tax collector of the district was told by Rome, 
I need well, this the, much money. I think the chief tax, tax collector was probably who got the original bid. So essentially, the Romans let out bids. Yeah. Whoever had the high bid, they have the right to collect taxes on the Jericho uh, highway system. And then they let out bids for different tax posts on different highways. And so I think that's kind of the idea. At least that's the way it's going to play. I wasn't quite that old. To All right. Well, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is kind of like the final approach. And uh, 11 to 27 is quite an interesting little story. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, Yermina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you were to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Does this remind you of anything? The other parable? The parable of the talents? The parable of the talents. It's a lot like it in some ways, isn't it? Is it the same parable? No, it's not. The setting's different, the audience is different. Uh, this is a uh, king, and the other one was a businessman. And he gave ten he talents. Gave, he, uh, he gave different uh, talents. He gave it to three slaves. This guy gives it to ten. You know, it's talent. It's minus here, not talents. Uh, there's different rewards. It's not the same story, but are you surprised that Jesus would teach a similar story mm-hmm. at different times? I do. <laughs> I Kids always thought I said the same thing over and over again as I preach and teach different places. You know, I mean, you got some illustrations that work well for you. You use them. People who hear me all over the place have to hear them over and over again. I've only got a limited quantity. So, Jesus, this is a little different, but it's the same basic idea that he's using. Now, notice that they they were that were listening. 
thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. I think part of the reason Jesus tells this story is to debunk that myth. Because here the nobleman did what in verse 12? He goes away. He goes to a distant country to... Receive a kingdom for himself. And then he comes back. So he goes away to receive the kingdom. That would not fit their idea of Jesus riding into Jerusalem to receive the kingdom. He goes a long way, distant country, and then later he'll come back. So the kingdom is not going to appear immediately like they thought it would. Now, he gives ten of his slaves a minor piece and says, use it till I come back. But however, in verse 14, what happened? Citizens decided they don't want him to be. Yeah, and so what do they do? They send, they send a group after him, but I get the idea that it's being sent to whoever it is that's going to give him the kingdom. I think it is. They're not saying to nobleman Smith, we don't want you. They're saying to whoever it is that's going to make it. Yeah. We don't want like, keep guy. him there and we don't want him We back. don't want him. Don't put him in his king. Reminds you a lot uh, of what some Jews had done. When Archelaus mm-hmm. was being appointed governor, they sent a delegation to Caesar trying to keep him from getting appointed governor. So it reminds them of something in their recent history. You know, we have these, these ideas of liberty and democracy and freedom and, you know, all that. Well, I mean, are we in a democracy in Christ? We are in a kingdom. A king has absolute say. The citizens have none. You know, they can reject him. It didn't keep him from being king. He's king whether you want it or not. And uh, so, I mean, don't think that the Lord's going to negotiate with us. And, uh, you know, maybe if we don't like that king, he'll try a different one. Uh, you know, and judging from the quality of the people we get in as presidents, we might be just as well if we had kings. You know, I mean... That, that that most of the people in the world have most of the time. But that's really not the point. The point is, he's going to be king, because God says he's going to be king, and we better uh, live with it. Um, meanwhile, when he comes back, he orders his slaves to uh, kind of let him know what they've been doing. And, uh, well, what has what have some of them been doing? What they were supposed to be doing. Yeah, so they've taken the mina. They were each given a mina, you know, and each had the same responsibility to work hard until the master came back, king came back. And uh, they had time because it was a far country he'd gone to. And uh, they, they may not have much, but this is going to tell you how faithful they were. And so the first one that appeared, what had he done with his mina? Wow. He really put it to good use. He got ten more miners out of that thing. And notice what he says. In verse 16. Your miner has made 
As opposed to saying what? I have Yes, it's your minor. They're crediting the king. The minor you gave. This is not, well, I want you to see what I did with this minor. It's your minor mate. They understand that they didn't do anything on their own. It was the minor that did it. And the second one, what did he do? Turned one into five. Yeah. And uh, in both cases, the Lord is, says, well done, good slave. And he puts the first one in charge of ten cities and the second one in charge of five. That is like very disproportionate reward. The minor was scarcely purchased a barn. And yet a whole city was given for each miner that was gained. You know, that's that's like, whoa. Man, I mean, it's like, you know, you make a little bit of money and the guy rewards you with, uh, you know, a whole shopping mall or something. I don't know. It's uh, quite quite an amazing reward here in the way Jesus tells the story. And, uh, but the third one comes along and uh, how's he done with his uh, minor use? <laughs> he still got it. He didn't lose it. <laughs> Why didn't he do what the other two have done? I don't know. He was afraid of losing it? Yes. He was afraid of losing it. He was afraid he wouldn't do a good job. He'd heard the master was very demanding. <laughs> And so it intimidated him and made him feel like he didn't want to mess up. What do you think about him? He, he was also kind of like, he didn't think it was fair. The third man didn't think it was fair that the master got wealth through using others, apparently, which... Yeah, I mean, I think he thought that the master was very demanding, that he expected a lot, and he didn't feel like, he didn't feel confident that he could do it. He was afraid he would never measure up. So, he didn't do anything. We ever do that? Sometimes when you feel overwhelmed, it's easier to just not do anything than even try to do a little bit. It is. Why? By sitting out, you're not failing, or at least you don't feel like you're Isn't that what we think? Exactly. When we don't do anything, we feel like we're not failing. If we do it, but we don't do it good enough or very good, we feel like a failure. Is that the right mindset not at all serving God is so important that it's worth doing badly now think about times when we do that what what are things we we shirk because we don't feel like we can do it good enough we feel like we're going to fail absolutely I don't, I won't know what to say. I won't be able to answer the questions. I won't be able to convert them. They probably won't like how I said it. I probably won't do a good job. I probably, I'm probably not the person. I probably don't have much influence on them. They probably don't care anyway. And so what do we do? We don't talk. Who is it that converts people? 
God. Yeah. Not me. So I'm all, if I just won't try. You know, we can't do that. That's not the right. If, if the master was really this, you know, demanding, hey, you'd better bust yourself trying to do everything you can. Doesn't make any sense to say you're so demanding, I just didn't do anything. You know, have we done that with Bible study? I just feel like I can't ever learn. I don't ever understand it good enough. I just won't even try. And, and so forth and so on. We're afraid we're going to fail. You know, and we got to stop that and, and let ourselves fail. We're all into our performance instead of I want to do everything for God I can. So, so we've got, we'd be like, if I can't be perfect, I don't want to do it because I don't want to, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to, and that's so wrong. When it comes to serving the Lord, we got to go for it. You may not do it great, but better than, better do it badly than not do it. I think it's a wonderful lesson. Because I think, man, we do that all the time. The worst situation is for perfectionists. You know, because it's like, ah, we paralyze ourselves with this trauma that we're going to mess it up. And so we don't do anything. Like, well, then you know it's messed up. <laughs> you know, that, that guarantees it. You know, if you want to be sure of failing, don't do anything. That's a failure guaranteed. You know, if you try it, maybe you won't fail. And maybe God wouldn't look at it as a failure, even though you would. You know, he knows our frailties. He didn't expect the blood out of a turnip. But I don't know if that's an old time phrase or not. Has anybody ever used that anymore? No. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard that every time. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, the older I get, the more those phrases I heard in my infancy come back to me. But you see the idea. And so I think this is really impressive. He said, you judge yourself. <laughs> you didn't produce anything. Why don't you at least put it in the bank and I got some interest? I mean, he didn't do anything. And so he takes it away from him and gave it to the one who had ten. And they like, they're like, well, he had 10 already. And he said, well, everyone who has shall get more, and everyone who doesn't have, what he does have will be taken away. God get, will, will only give more opportunities to the people who use well the blessings they have now. You know, why would God give you more contacts to teach the gospel to if you don't teach the ones you got? Why would he give you more knowledge of the word if you don't use the knowledge you've got? You know, that's, it's just, you know, it's so encouraging when people do what they can. This is a small example, uh, but uh, I, well, I'll, this is worth telling the first part, though this is not one of the guys. But we have had in the last three or four weeks at uh, Parkersville, six young people obey the gospel. It's been really exciting. But one of the ones who obeyed the gospel a year ago gave his first talk last night, and he... He asked to be put on, but it was really hard for him, which I knew it would be. But he did it, which was really cool. It, it wasn't, it really wasn't easy. And you could see it. And afterwards, I was standing beside him when his dad came up and said, do you feel better now? He said, no. <laughs> I think he did probably when he left the building and nobody else was talking to him. But uh, he was as uptight afterwards as he was when he did it. It was just kind of funny. But, uh, but uh, I'm 
fairly confident from talking to him, he's willing to do another. You know that even though it was really hard, he's you know. And he took he took totally his own initiative. Came up to me and said, "I wanted I want to start doing talks." I said, "Well, then text the guy who schedules people and he'll do it." So he he did, but I didn't ask him. I didn't suggest it. I mean, it's great when that's a small thing, obviously, you know. But 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 he didn't do it because he felt like he was going to do such a wonderful job. That he was just the most great speaker, and he knew he could you know impress everybody. That wasn't why he did that. He wanted to serve. He wanted to help. That's the right attitude. We have, we do all we can based on whatever we've got. And the more we serve, the more we'll get to serve with. Can you see that principle in parenting? It sounds like, like an overwhelming thing to have, you know, certain rules and systems that you're going to stick with. And so that it's easier just to let it all go and rather than do it and sometimes make mistakes and spank when you shouldn't or not think when you should. And <laughs> We're not going to do it perfectly, but if we cop out and don't do it, it's a lot worse. <laughs> yeah. You don't do anything perfectly. You know, we're not, we're not perfectly capable. Nobody ever said we would be. We do what we can with what we've got. And we don't feel like a failure when we've done what we can. We're thankful we've been able to do that. You didn't convert that person, but you did talk to them about the Lord. You did offer them a Bible study. You did show them some things. You did do, well, you're not the only servant God's got. You know, maybe you took them a little ways, and maybe somebody else will pick them up and take them a while longer. And, and you never know. I was really excited, uh, Yesterday, I believe, there's a man in Brazil that I've met, of all things, he was baptized, I believe, by his wife, uh, actually, uh, which they were on a trip, and she was the one available. Uh, but I, when I met him a few months ago, here's what he did, has done for a living. He has... Tax collector. No, <laughs> worse. He, he has been making his own coffee. And has several shops where they sell, you know, high-end coffee. You know, kind of Starbucks kind of thing, but it's not a, you know, brand uh, worldwide or anything like that. And his own brewery where he sells the beer. (laughs) But he's getting rid of they selling that or or, or closing it down. And uh, just going with coffee. And I would have never thought he'd have done that. You know, he's pretty successful businessman. Uh... And you never know. You know, I mean, at the time it even looked like he was more just coming to the little worship service because his wife wanted to. Not so much because he wanted to. You never know. You know, you just keep reaching out. You keep trying to help. You keep trying to teach. You do what you can. You know, didn't seem like a very impressive connection that I made. That's all I did. I studied with him one, one day and uh, talk to him a while. But, you know, God uses different people doing different things. But I was really excited to know that. I really did not expect it. Other thoughts and comments on this story? Oh, by the way, what about those uh, enemies that didn't want uh, him to reign over them? They would be killed. That wasn't a good thing. You know, when we mutiny against the king, it's not going to be pleasant. All right, so anything you want to say about this story to 27? 
So they didn't have to have him reign over them. <laughs> no, I don't think it helped. <laughs> I think he's still the one in charge even after the afterlife. You can't get rid of him that easy. <laughs> <laughs> dying won't get rid of him. In the story. Yeah, yeah, in that's the story. true. I wonder yeah. if the one minor guy kind of made himself feel better by thinking, well, you know, I'm not one of the guys that are one of the rabble rousers. You know, I'm just at least not causing any harm. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes you may feel that way. You remember, they all got one miner to start with, but he was the one miner guy at the end. Well, compared to the citizens. But you okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, he wasn't, he didn't do with it yet. Could be. You know, he was, he was a, he was, uh. I'm lazy, but I'm not an insurrection. He's not gonna, he's not gonna look <laughs> at what he does, yeah. <laughs> Too lazy to be an insurrection. <laughs> I don't do anything wrong. <laughs> yeah. Neither is a rock. <laughs> you know? I mean, isn't that what some people's religion amounts to? Just not doing anything wrong? Good thoughts. Other thoughts. I like those. Well, how about 28 to 34? Oh, I have a quick thought. I'm sorry. Well, think I was... Yeah, I didn't <laughs> think it was fast enough. <laughs> when, when they said... Um, they supposed that the kingdom was going to appear immediately like when he went to Jerusalem I imagine I imagine okay. yeah that's what it looks to me like and actually like he had to die and be raised and he went all the way to heaven to get it okay yeah that's when he was crowned okay yeah so most of the story doesn't seem to be directly answering that but just <laughs> the first part about the that's going true. away yes Okay. He yeah. like puts a lot of lessons into this story. But he about does it. sometimes. You know, there was a myth that went around scholarly circles a hundred years ago that a parable could only have one lesson. <laughs> Where did people come up with that? People come up with all these arbitrary rules. I think that's pretty well been debunked now, but that was a really prevalent thing among scholars a hundred years ago. You know, and it's like, that's kind of arbitrary. I can see some parables that have all kinds of lessons in them. Now, you know, you're not trying to make more of it than what's there. But clearly, this is more than just saying he went away to receive a kingdom. He could have just said that and been done with it. Alright, 28-34. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it, and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Alright, so Jesus uh, is going to Jerusalem, which is a pretty important place by this time in the Gospel. We've heard about it quite a bit, and uh, I've kind of gotten the sense of uh, his journeying in this direction. And we know that Jesus knows what's about to happen. How would you feel if you knew that you were about to be crucified? Less likely to want to enter the city. And and just more unnerved. Wow, I don't know. I, I'm impressed by people who know they're, you know, terminal. And still they manage to keep their calm. I think that would be unsettling. 
We're all terminal, but we don't know it. You know, we don't see it that way. But if Jesus knows that he's about to be crucified, but he just seems so in complete control, even in a stressful time like this. So he says two of the disciples, and, you know, basically he tells them everything. Where the beast was, that it was tied up, that it hadn't been ridden before, what to do to get it. And, you know, you kind of think, uh, well, what, what right does he have just to commandeer this uh, donkey? Uh, and what right does he have? Every. Because? What does he say? The Lord has need of it. He needs it. That's all it takes. You know, permission isn't needed, just explanation. The Lord needs it, okay. I mean, the needs and claims of Jesus supersede the rights of ownership. If the Lord needs it, then it's his. He's the Lord of Lords. Everything we have is the Lord's. If the Lord needs our money, or our time, or our anything, we're His, and everything we've got's His. If He needs it, to give it to Him. It's His. So I think that's just really impressive. If we thought more about that, we'd probably be way, way more submissive. So they're going to bring Him this colt. Uh, to ride on into Jerusalem. That's where this is going, but that's the requisitioning of the cult. Thoughts and comments through 34. It's just kind of of interesting. It looks like they just saw the cult, walked up to it, and started taking it, and... I think they did. (laughs) And that's just like... And so it's like, it's owners. It's not some passerby who says... What you doing there? You know, it's uh, excuse me. Why are you taking my property? Kind of thing. So, be like somebody just walking up to your car and jumping in it, and it's got the keys in it, and they just drive off in it. <laughs> what 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 are you doing? Oh, the Lord has need of it. But <laughs> <laughs> that seemed to do it. I know they seem to accept that answer. Presumably, yeah. they knew who the Lord. I was assume so. In. I assume so. If Jesus needs something, okay, you can have it. 35 to 40. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So they bring the colt to Jesus. They put their coats on the colt, because uh, Jesus is, uh, I guess, too you know, important to just ride on the colt itself. He needs a little saddle there. And uh, then as they spread their coats out on the road that Jesus is going on. You know, he deserves a royal carpet here. And they do the best they can. They improvise. And they're approaching Jerusalem, and the whole crowd is praising God with a loud voice, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, it's kind of loud. You know, annoying maybe to some, especially the people who don't believe in Jesus, like some of the Pharisees who says, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know, there's a noise ordinance around here, or whatever. Uh, 
How did Jesus handle that request on their behalf? They don't. Other things will start crying out. Like? Stones. The stones. If they don't do this, the stones will cry out in uh, praise of, of me. Um, Habakkuk 2.11 When somebody gets evil gain for his house, he, he builds his house by ill-gotten gain, Habakkuk 2.11, surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. So if you built the house fraudulently, the stones will cry out to denounce you. There are some things that can't be hushed up. And actually, I think it's particularly impressive in this context that Jesus said the stones will cry out. Jesus could have said anything, right? The clouds will cry out or the trees will cry out or, you know, whatever. But he says the stones will cry out. wonder why he used the stones will cry out besides the passage in Habakkuk. Yes, didn't it shout something? What did that stone cry out? Resurrection. He'd been raised. Amen. I think there's another reason. The earthquake is death. Mm, well, the, the the earthquake did open the. Uh, I'm sure it said stone. <laughs> what did it say in uh, Matthew 26? Well, there are stones in the ground, and if the ground is the rocks were split, okay. So maybe so. The rocks were split in uh, uh, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. I think it's something else. Stones of the temple. Yes, look at 44. They, they won't leave in you one stone upon another. Look at 2018. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Not sure that's as... Quite the same thing, but it's interesting that he says that. And then twenty-one six again, there won't be one stone left upon another. So at least the stones that were demolished in the destruction of Jerusalem cried out, and uh, maybe Jesus was a stone that cried out in some ways. So I just think it's interesting that he says that. I suspect he probably picked stone there purposely. Other thoughts? He was. Yeah, you got all that in First Peter two, where Peter does his rock concert business. And, uh, that's pretty impressive. So these people that are praising him as he's coming in, I mean, the things that they're saying are true, but they—they're probably not thinking about them in the way that Jesus is thinking about them. Probably not. Um, but I think it's interesting that Jesus still accepts that. Like, he doesn't feel obligated to correct every single misconception that they have about the Messiah. But I, think, I think what they said was true. What yeah. they were thinking probably wasn't. Yeah. They are praising him, even if they don't understand it. And then, over in Matthew, it talks about Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of the beast of the burden. Which is a uh, passage from Zechariah 9. Okay, yeah. Showing his humility. So that's like all. Yes, yeah. There's all kinds of uh, things in this. Good point. 
Other thoughts? 41 to 44. When he approached, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus wept not over his own suffering, but over the fate of the city itself. That's interesting. And he wishes they had known the things that make for peace. Jerusalem. Do you know what the salam part means? Peace. peace. Shalom. Yeah. That's peace. Uh, but they didn't. And therefore, the enemies are going to destroy them. Because they did not recognize the time of your visitation. Like a visitation, like at a funeral. <laughs> what does they mean that they didn't recognize the time of their visitation? Lord has come to visit his, the earth, and, and I'm thinking Luke one with Zacharias and Simeon and Anna and other folks. Precisely, yes. In fact, you've got the statement that Zacharias says. Uh, Somewhere, um, oh, the sunrise from on high will visit us in 178. Uh, also, 168, <coughs> blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. So, yeah, 168, 178. Talk about that. Maybe some other passages. Was Peter talking about the day of Uh, yeah, I think so. Is that First Peter 2.12, if I'm not mistaken? Uh, yeah, they glorify God in the day of visitation. I think that's probably um, perhaps the day when the Lord comes back. A little questionable. But still a visit. Psalm 65.9 You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain. For thus you prepare the earth. So God visits on various occasions in various ways. And we're supposed to recognize it. Thoughts and comments to 44. I guess I hadn't thought of the destruction of Jerusalem as a direct punishment for this. Oh, I think it is. Yeah, I think it very much is. This is God, um, you know, retaliating against their rejection of his son. Forty-five to forty-eight. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who had sold in it, and saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him, and were unable to do anything, for all the, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Alright, so Jesus enters the temple and starts driving out the sellers 
This isn't the first time he'd done that, I don't think. In John's Gospel, in John 2, he does it at the beginning of his ministry. Are you surprised that he'd do it again? No, shouldn't be. I've used this story before, I'm sure, but it reminds me of on the pedestrian streets of Sao Paulo when we'd be passing out flyers, and there'd be camelos, uh, whatever you call those, uh, they were kind of illegal street merchants that had their big tablecloths and tarps and sheets and whatever with all kinds of stuff spread out to sell, kind of black market stuff. And suddenly, you know, we'd be passing out flyers, and so you're in between these guys, or, you know, or it's narrowed the street where people can walk because they're all in the middle. Suddenly, whew, everybody vanishes, all these guys. And you look up, and there's the a prefeitura dump truck of the city dump truck driving down the pedestrian street, you know, ready to grab anybody that didn't recognize they were coming. You never know where these guys went. They just vanish in the thin air. I guess they go to the shops. I don't know. And then, you know, we keep passing out flyers in 30 minutes. Somebody pop out again. 45 minutes, an hour later, a couple more. Two or three hours later, you never know that prefeitura dump truck had gone through there. And, uh, so that kind of reminds me of that. Uh, this is something that seems a little rude on Jesus' part again, don't you think? Going to their temple and clean house. A little rude on their part. Their temple? <laughs> yeah, that was the issue, wasn't it? Whose was it? God's. It was, it was Jesus' temple. And <laughs> but, but I think he's doing this from the standpoint of it being his father's temple. I... I may have used this illustration, I don't know, but um, when I was in New Salisbury, there was a brother who lived in my subdivision who had three children. His youngest was a son, and with his permission, I, I did a lot of stuff with that boy, and I got really close to the boy. He, unfortunately, is not serving the Lord, uh, but I cared a lot about him. He was very, very shy, uh, but he and I really did have a really good relationship. He loved to skate. So I took him to skate parks. I took him and his friends to skate parks. I taught him to drive when he was 13 with his dad's permission and did all kinds of stuff with him. Um, and I, for a while, I taught him as the only kid in the class. All the other teenagers were in a different class, but it gave me a chance to teach him and be with him, and the brethren were fine with that. Uh, he did better one-on-one. But he, in one of those sessions, he, he was telling me, he was an interesting guy. At, the, at this point, he's probably 17. He did not drink. He didn't uh, take drugs. He didn't smoke or anything like that. But he hung with the guys who did somewhat. He was kind of impartial as far as who he'd hang with. And he was very not easy to pressure. You know, I'd seen I'd see the guy egging him on skating. He wouldn't do anything skating until he was good and ready to. And he did a ton of stuff, but he didn't do it until he was ready, whenever that was. And so they didn't pressure him much to do other things successfully. But he told me one time, his mother was not a Christian at all. But his dad was. It was his dad's house. And he respected his dad. His dad was a Christian. You know, tried to live like a Christian. A couple of his buddies came to, like, spend the night. And he realized after a while that they'd both brought their own bottle. Now, he didn't care if they drank. He was, like I say, it was kind of indifferent to him. He was not a Christian, and it didn't really bother him. But he was furious with them because they brought their you know, beer into his dad's house. I don't think he was worried that his dad was going to punish him. He was just outraged that they would desecrate his dad's house in something that he knew that his dad absolutely would not approve of. 
because he was old enough. His dad didn't punish him. You know, he was going to do what he wanted to. But but I thought that was interesting. I mean, I think the future see Jesus do it. It's outrageous that they're doing this, you know, merchandising of the animals for sacrifice in his house. That's not what the house was for. That's not what God made it for. And I think if you imagine that a scene like that, you can understand doing that. Now, here's my question. What's God's temple today? Does he have a physical house? What's his house? Us. Do you suppose that he would kick some things out of our lives that make him very uncomfortable living in that house? That he would consider outrageous and, you know, kind of a desecration of the place we've given him to live? Something to think about. You know, that's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6 when he condemns fornication. He says, you know, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're committing fornication in the Holy Spirit's house. You know, uh, I, I there, was a, there was a boy one time that he was uh, spending the night at, uh, you know, a, a really respected brother's house that he respected a lot. And I'm not even sure, I think it was pornography or whatever, but he found himself looking at things he shouldn't in this guy's house. And it really bothered him. Because he respected the man and he realized that he had, you know, he'd done something that the guy would have very much not approved of in his very house. And I think, thinking about that, there's just things that are not appropriate where God lives. We've, we've invited God to live in us. We better do some house cleaning. So he continued teaching the temple every day and they couldn't really do anything about it because everybody liked him. Questions and comments on the end of chapter 19. Chapter 20, 